Okay, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Nahmaduhu wa nusalli ala rasulihi al-kareem. Amma ba'ad. We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings on the Prophet, peace be upon him. Continuing our exploration, we are doing Mishkat al-Masawi. Um, fire away. Okay, so in the last class we, st- uh, we were talking about some of the... Um, the scholars of hadith, and we touched on Imam Bukhari, rahimahullah, Imam Muslim, rahimahullah, and Imam Malik, rahimahullah. So today we're going to cover Imam Shafi'i um, and a couple others. So, starting with Imam Shafi'i, his name was Muhammad, and his kunya was Abu Abdullah, and he was famous by the name Shafi'i. His family tree is traced by Muhammad bin Idris bin Abbas bin Uthman ibn Shafi'i ibn Sa'id ibn Ubaid ibn Abdi Yazid. Ibn Hashim, Ibn Mutallib, Ibn Abdumanaf, Al Qurayshi, Al Mutallibi. So Shafi'i is called Mutallibi because his forefather was Mutallib, who was a brother of Hashim Ibn Abdumanaf. Um, Imam Shafi'i was one of the children of Hashim, um, uh, and the second one was uh, was the son of Mutallib. The other Hashim, who was the son of Abdumanaf and the brother of Mutallib, was a forefather of the Prophet Sallallahu He was the father of Shayba, which we know as Abdul Mutallib. Um, thus, the family tree of the Prophet and Imam Shafi'i branches out at Abdu'l-Manaf. Uh, Shafi'i is the ancestor of Imam Shafi'i, um, and he was alive at the time of the Prophet and his father Sa'id had also been alive at the Prophet's time. So it goes to show you that the uh, that Imam Shafi'i, uh, his ancestry was um, like correlated with um, the ancestry of that of the Prophet um, and his ancestors lived at the time of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi And so it talks about some of his ancestors. Um, Sa'id had been, like I said, alive at the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam time. Uh, and he was the very person who had held the standard of Banu Hashim for disbelieving Quraysh um, in the battle between right and wrong and Badr. And when the dis- disbelievers lost the battle and many of them were taken captives, Sa'id was one of them. Then he earned uh, freedom by ransoming himself, and he embraced Islam. So Imam Shafi'i, he was born in Gaza uh, in 150 AH, which would be, I think, like the 700s, right? Or, yeah, no, 780. 780. Some authorities say that he was born at uh, Aqsalan, and some others uh, say Mina. He was then taken to Mecca, where he grew up uh, in the sacred surroundings. Um, he committed the Quran to memory at the age of seven, subhanAllah, and uh, the Mu'atta of Imam Malik at the age of 10. Uh, he learned fiqh from Muslim Ibn Khalid, who was a mufti at the time, and when he was 15, the well-known Islamic scholars and sheikhs had given him authority to issue fatawa, which are like religious edicts, is how it's described, but like a religious order. Um, then he traveled to Medina to continue to, seeking, to seek knowledge, and he became a student of Imam Malik Ibn Anas, who we touched on last class. Um, Imam Shafi'i said that in his early life he was interested in poetry and he'd memorized verses of poetry which he recited often. Um, and one time, this is a narration that I thought was important, um, he says that he was sitting in the shade of the Kaaba when he was all alone and he heard the Imam say, um, O Muhammad, take up what is authentic and lasting and give up poetry. And so as a result of that, he stopped, um, well he didn't stop studying poetry, but he uh, he basically reduced the amount of time he spent on poetry and began studying more so on um, on Islam, Hadith, and, um, you know, the Islamic studies. 
So he also said that he saw a dream in which he heard the Prophet ﷺ call him. He answered, Labbaik, Ya Rasulullah, here I am, O Messenger of Allah. The Prophet ﷺ said, To what tribe do you belong? He answered, Messenger of Allah, I am from your tribe. The Prophet ﷺ then said, Come close to me and open your mouth. Imam Shafi'i went close to the Prophet ﷺ and opened his mouth. The Prophet ﷺ said them, Put this, I found really interesting. The Prophet ﷺ put the saliva from his own mouth into the mouth of Imam Shafi'i. Uh, and said, Go, may Allah shower on your blessings and auspiciousness. Imam Shafi'i rahimahullah said, Thereafter, never was a mistake committed by me in the learning of hadith and Arabic literature. So this is a very bold statement by Imam Shafi'i attributing to himself in this dream. Imam Shafi'i rahimahullah said that when he presented himself before Imam Malik rahimahullah, he identified Shafi'i with his manner of conversation and appearance and asked, What is your name? He said, Muhammad. Imam Malik rahimahullah said, O oh, Muhammad, practice taqwa which is God-fearingness. Fear Allah and keep yourself away from sin, for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will make your will make you possessor of glory and greatness in the Ummah of the Prophet Imam Shafi'i stayed with Imam Malik for a long time, occupied in learning and gaining knowledge. Um, when he had qualified and asked Imam Rahimahullah to grant him permission to go, um, Imam Malik said this, O Imam Shafi'i, or O young man, Allah has placed light in your heart, so it is your duty to care for it. Let not the darkness of sin cloud your light. After leaving Imam Malik, rahimahullah, he went to Baghdad and studied more of hadith from the scholars over there. He went to Mecca from there and again back to Baghdad. After some time, he went to Egypt where he occupied himself in teaching and began to write very valuable and useful books in large number. He wrote 14 books on principles of religion and jurisprudence and about 100 books um, on branches of religion. And one of the other um, scholars who also established a madhab of his own, a madhab, sorry, of his own, was Imam Ahmed bin Hanbal. And he said about Imam Shafi'i, I had not known the annulling and the annulled, the particular and the common. He detailed uh, the details and the precise in hadith, but when I took up the company of the Imam Shafi'i, rahimahullah, I became aware of these things. Um, Imam Muhammad, rahimahullah, the student of Imam Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah, said, Imam Shafi'i, rahimahullah, borrowed Abu Hanifa's book, Kitab Aswat, and memorized the whole book in one night and one day. Uh, and Imam Shafi'i, rahimahullah, died in the last day of Rajab, 204 Hijra, on a Friday. Um, he was buried the same day. One of his books, Kitab al uh, enjoys a very important status. Uh, his teachers were Imam Malik, as we talked about, and some other scholars, such as Sufyan ibn Ruyayna, uh, and he learned hadith from them. Some of his students are, uh, as we said, Imam Ahmed bin Hanbal and uh, Sufyan Thawri, rahimahullah. Yeah, I mean, essentially Imam Shafi today is known primarily for two books. One is Risala, and, which is sort of his legal theory. And the other is Kitab uh, Al-Umm, which is sort of a rewriting of, of some amount of the theory. And and uh, and yeah, the other really big point would be that he was himself a student of Imam Malik. One of the greatnesses of Imam Malik is that two schools of law come from him, Maliki and then Shafi. Imam Shafi. Shafi. Okay, good work. Inshallah. Do you want to continue, or what do you want to do now? Yeah, we can continue. But before that, like, um, isn't it like well, isn't it the case that like for the four Imams, they all like studied under like what? One of them studied kind of from like the other. Um, so as, as so Ahmed ibn Hanbal studied uh, among quite a few, and then Imam Abu Hanifa is distant physically from everyone else. And so Imam Abu Hanifa also is studying from a bunch of scholars. So 
So one point to think about, which you didn't say this, uh, but a lot of a mistake that a lot of people make is, um, in the same way some people think that there's like almost nothing until Imam Bukhari comes along. Uh, Imam Bukhari is is part of a whole lineage of teachers, going back to the Prophet peace be upon him, and included in the pathways are these scholars, and they're following a whole lineage of teachers. And so, so Imam Abu Hanifa is in Iraq. And he's studying for extensive periods of time with with various scholars. And Imam Abu Hanifa, for example, is also believed to be a tabi'i, which means he's seen as sahabi. And and so these are the different pathways he's learning from. And Imam Abu Hanifa and Imam Malik are contemporaries of each other. They know each other's thought. And so there's definitely a lot of cross-pollination, at the very least. I see. Right? I mean, Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, he comes a bit later, so he's not a contemporary of, of Imam Malik or Imam, or Imam Abu Hanifa, but he's still learning from the same material. I see. Yeah. <coughs> All right. All right. Now we touch on Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, rahimahullah. His kunya was Abu Abdullah, and his name was Ahmad. His line of descent is <coughs> as such Ahmad ibn Muhammad ibn Hanbal ibn Hilal ibn Asad ibn Idris ibn Abdullah ibn Hiban ibn Asad ibn Rabi'ah ibn Nazar ibn Sa'id ibn Adnan, and so on. Uh, he was recognized as an authority and front ranking, ranking sorry, scholar of hadith and fiqh of his time. He came after the times, as we said, of Imam Abu Hanifa, Imam Malik, and Imam Shafi'i. Um, and he was a student of Imam Shafi'i, rahimahullah, who himself was a student of Imam Malik. He was recognized as a scholar, as I said, of hadith and fiqh. Um, he grew up in Baghdad, and he got his education and qualification in hadith there. After that, he studied um, to a couple of different places to learn hadith. Um, and it mentions Kufa, Busra, uh, Mecca, Medina, Yemen, Syria, uh, Syria and other places. Um, and he sought knowledge from scholars of every land he visited and received their permission to narrate hadith. Some of his teachers that are mentioned here include Yazid ibn Harun, Yahya ibn Sa'id Qatan, Sufyan ibn Uyayna, and Imam Shafi'i, as we said. And he narrated hadith from them. His students included Imam Bukhari, rahimahullah, Muslim ibn Hujjaj, rahimahullah, Abu Zahra, and Abu Dawood Sajistani. These people transmitted hadith from him. Ishaq ibn Rahwai, rahimahullah, has said about him that he was in argument between Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his slaves. Imam Shafi'i testified, I did not find anyone in Baghdad more ascetic, God-fearing, and knowledgeable than Imam Ahmad bin Hanbal. Ahmad Sa'id Darami uh, used to confirm that he had not seen anyone who could remember the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ better or more than Imam Ahmad rahimahullah. And Abu Dawood Sajistani uh, rahimahullah would say, to sit with Imam Ahmad bin Hanbal is like sitting with the people of the hereafter because in his company, nothing but religion is discussed. He, uh, it's said about him that he developed a, or sorry, adopted a life of austerity and for the 70 odd years he lived, he, remain, he remained independent, placing trust solely on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is spite of his greatness. He never sought comfort and never took anything from anyone. And to go off of this point, I remember um, hearing a story about Imam Ahmad bin Hamad where he went uh, to a land and he was sleeping, like he wanted to sleep in the masjid there. And so as a result, uh, the guard of that masjid kicked him out of the masjid, so like you can't sleep here. And so Imam Ahmad, he, he didn't, you know, he could have easily said like, I'm Imam Ahmad, what are you doing? You know, how dare you do this to me? And you know, that would be that. But he didn't. 
So instead, you know, he looked for a place to go until a baker came and told him, you know, why don't you come by my place? I have a spot for you, but I'll be baking the entire night. And so Imam Ahmed goes to that place um, to, with the baker, and he notices that the baker is always doing dhikr, um, and constantly, he's not stopping. And so Imam Ahmed waits, you know, one hour goes by, two hours go by, time and time goes by, until finally he asks the baker, how long have you been doing this? And he, does, and he says, I don't stop doing dhikr. And Imam Ahmed said, what have you seen as a result of this? And uh, the baker says, that every dua of mine has gotten accepted, except one. And he said, what's that one dua that hasn't gotten accepted? That's what the baker says to me, Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal. Uh, so that's a really interesting. It shows you, number one, the power of dhikr, but also it goes off of what this, um, what the Mishkaat is saying, what this introduction is saying um, about how humble he was um, and how he put his trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, even when he had the ability not to. You know, he, he could have chosen not to in that, in that case. But anyway, um, Muhammad ibn Musa rahimahullah, uh, has reported that the Egyptians sent Hassan ibn Abdul Aziz to Baghdad with a legacy of 100,000 gold coins loaded on many animals. Hassan ibn Abdul Aziz sent to Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal a number of bags with 1,000 coins of each, saying, I have received this wealth as lawful inheritance. Do accept something for yourself and spend it on your family. But Imam Ahmed refused the offer. Uh, and he did not take even a single gold coin from it saying, I don't need it. Therefore, um, that's one of the examples of, of his trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then the other one is the one that I mentioned earlier. Um, as we said, he was born in Baghdad in 164 after Hijrah. And he died there in 241 uh, after Hijrah on Friday. Some of his works are the Musnad of Imam Ahmad. Um, and it is a great book that contains more than 30,000 ahadith. Yeah. The, uh, in terms of his approach versus Imam uh, al-Bukhari, is Imam al-Bukhari is focusing on what is the most authentic of the authentic, whereas Imam Ahmad is more compiling everything that has even a certain amount of authenticity. And so a lot of times people will be critical of the Musnad of Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, arguing that it's not really all that authentic. But his approach was that if you can find four different answers from the Prophet, peace upon him, for a question, those are your four answers. Done. Right? Uh, so he doesn't have as much of a methodology um, in the way Abu Hanifa does, or Imam Malik does, or Imam Shafi does. And thus, we can argue that the Hanbali school, two things have happened to it in the 20th century. One is that it's been overtaken by the Salafis which would focus more on Bukhari and Muslim than on the Hanbal collection. And then the other is that it hasn't succeeded as well in keeping up with changes in technology, so it's become less and less relevant for people's times. Uh, but nevertheless, as one of the great scholars of our tradition, he's, he's at or near the, the, the top. So, would you say like, because a lot of people characterize the Hanbali method as being the, the most strict of the form of the uh -huh. right? Um, would you say like that still stands, or would you say that like the true, you know, like Hanbali school of thought, like how it's supposed to be, wouldn't feel like so? That? So it's hard to define things according to strictness or looseness, and so so in the Hanbali school, if we have four answers, if we have six answers by the Prophet peace be upon him for a question, you can do any of those six. But the Hanafi school might say, all right, if you're looking for our methodology for this question, we come to this conclusion, and that's your only option. And so that's harder to answer 
you know, which is the most strict. The stereotype is the Hanbalis are the most strict. Uh, in practice, I don't know if that's true, though. I see. Yeah. Okay. So next is Imam Tirmidhi, rahimahullah. His kunya was Abu Isa, and his name was Muhammad ibn Isa, Surah uh, ibn Musa ibn Tihak Tirmidhi. He's known by the name Tirmidhi because of his association with the city of that name. Um, he was a great muhaddith, uh, which can be gouged by his book, Tirmidhi, which gauged, is... Gauged. Gauged, sorry. <laughs> which can be gauged, <laughs> which can be gauged from his book, Tirmidhi, which is one of the uh, Sahih Sitta um, collections of hadith, like the six most authentic books of hadith. Uh, the muhaddithin uh, regard it very highly, um, and as I said, it's classified as Sahih Sitta. When he narrates a hadith, he makes it a point to name the narrators from whom he had re uh, heard or received the hadith so that the category of the hadith is known, um, like, is it a continuous or a single narrator? Uh, with the hadith, he also mentions the conclusion derived from the hadith and the viewpoint of different Islamic scholars. At every stage, he also mentions the status of the narrator, whether weak or strong. He also comments on the hadith's authenticity, Sahih, Hassan, Gharib, or Munkar. In the transmission of hadith, the narrators between him and the Prophet are a minimum of three and a maximum of ten. There's a hadith which only has three means uh, in in between such a hadith is called Thalathi. The muhadithin for whom he is narrated are Qutaybat ibn Sa'id, Mahmud ibn Qaidan, and Muhammad ibn Bashar, uh, Ahmad ibn Mani, Muhammad ibn Mathna, and some others. Um, he had many students too. Uh, some of the more notable among them are Muhammad ibn Ahmad and Haytham ibn Qulayb. Um, he completed his Jami'i Tirmidhi and sent it to the Islamic scholars of the Hijaz, Iraq, and Khurasan, and they gave it their approving comments. He also compiled the Shama'il um, of Imam Tirmidhi, which is based on the Prophet ﷺ's features. Um, and even in that, you see that in every hadith narrated in the Shama'il, he goes with the entire chain, um, like such as uh, one of the first hadith in like the Shamal is Hadathana Abu Raja and Mukhtaybatu ibn Sa'id an Malik ibn Anas Arabiatadni Abi Abdul Rahman an Anas ibn Malik. So he goes down the chain. He says, you know, I received this hadith from Abu Raja and Mukhtaybatu ibn Sa'id, which is one of the people that we mentioned here, an Malik ibn Anas, who got it from Imam Malik ibn Anas, an Rabi'ah ibn Abi Abdul Rahman, who got it from Rabi'ah ibn Abi Abdul Rahman, an Anas ibn Malik, uh, from Anas ibn Malik, who was a companion. Um, uh, of the Prophet who said, you know, and then he finishes the hadith. Mm. So I, I think that's very interesting about the way he did it and he focuses once again on that. And, you know, if we look at many of the collections, it usually says like, um, like that he comments on it that like, okay, this hadith is authentic or it's not. So why do we see that in Bukhari? Why don't we see that in Bukhari? Because Bukhari's entire compilation is based on being very authentic. Yeah, it's based on being sahih. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, more? or Yeah, more. Right. <laughs> uh, I was thinking about trying to finish nice. Yeah, this part. One sec. Uh, okay, so next is Imam Abu Dawood. Um, his kunya was Abu Dawood, and his name is Suleiman ibn Ash'ath ibn Ishaq ibn Bashir. He's known as Sijistani because he was a resident of Sijistan. He traveled widely in his quest for knowledge and hadith, and he presented himself before the Islamic scholars and muhaddithin of Iraq, Khurasan, Syria, Egypt, and Hijaz. He heard a hadith from them and got their permission to quote them. He's narrated a hadith from many Islamic scholars, such as Muslim ibn Ibrahim, Sunayman ibn Harb, Yahya ibn Mu'in, and Ahmed ibn Hanbal. Those who have transmitted from him include Abu Abdurrahman Nasa'i and Ahmed ibn Muhammad. 
The native land of Abu Dawood is uh, Busra, but he moved to Baghdad where he compiled his great work, Sunan Abu Dawood, which is also uh, one of the um, Sahih Sitta. When the people read over the Sunan Abu Dawood to Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal on the authority of Abu Dawood, he appreciated it highly. Imam Abu Dawood said that he had narrated 500,000 ahadith of the Prophet ﷺ from the Islamic scholars and muhaddithin of which he collected. Uh, and in his book, there's 1,600 authentic and reliable hadith. Of these, there are four ahadith that may suffice all other ahadith, meaning that they are uh, included comprehensively all points and all philosophies. They are, um, deeds are like, Indeed, deeds are judged by the intentions that guide them. In Hasni Islam and Mar'i, Tarkum Mada Yani, he who wishes to observe to observe Islam well, let him not uh, let him leave alone matters that don't concern him. The third is um, The believer will not become a perfect believer until unless he prefers for his brother what he prefers for himself or in another uh, narration لا يؤمن أحدكم حتى يحب لأخيه ما يحب لنفسه إن الحلال and then the fourth one is إن الحلال بين وإن الحرام بين وبينهما أمور مشتبهات the lawful is defined and the unlawful is defined and between them are the doubtful things uh, and it's interesting because all four of these are in um, Imam Nawawi's Arba'in um, so I find that very interesting because these four hadith uh, as this book says are very essential to our understanding of Islam um, Abu Bakr Khalal, rahimahullah, another imam, asserted that Imam Abu Dawood, rahimahullah, was an illustrious man of his time, and he had very good temperament. He was ascetic. He was an aesthetic. Um, he was recognized for his eminence and command over hadith, and his book is an outstanding work, and it ranks above many books after Bukhari and Muslim. Uh, he was born in 202 after Hijrah and died in 276 after Hijrah. Okay, good. Um, yeah, it's good to uh, master those four hadith. Right. Uh, so that, that so uh, so Imam al Nawawi, uh, he, um, he has the forty hadith, forty two hadith, which are sort of giving a complete picture of Islam, and then a larger version of that is Riyadh al Salihin, right. which is here somewhere, uh, which is a whole picture of Islam in something like twenty seven hundred narrations, and so Imam Dawood is saying that these four give a complete picture of, of Islam and so on. Okay. Next is Imam Nasari, rahimahullah. Um, didn't we say that like some people say his name differently? Yeah, some people mispronounce it as Nisa'i, so it's Nasa'i. Yeah. And sometimes those vowels are not as important in terms of Arabic as long as it doesn't change the meaning. So, Sijistani for Imam Dawood, you will often hear Sajistani. Uh, officially, I believe it's actually Sijistani, but Allah knows best, but yeah. I see. Uh, so his, kun his kunya was Abu Abdul Rahman, and his name was Ahmed ibn Shu'aib ibn Ali ibn Bahr ibn Sanan, Sanan. He was a resident of Nasa, a city in Khurasan, so he got his name Nasa'i. <coughs> he was born in 214 or 215 after Hijrah. He traveled wild, uh, wide, widely to learn and met illustrious Islamic scholars at the time. Um, he, the countries that he visited include Khurasan, Iraq, Syria, and Egypt, um, where he studied hadith. He was 15 years old when he met Qutayb ibn Sa'id for his first lessons. He stayed there for about 14 months. Imam Nasari followed the Shafi'i school of thought, as is evident from his book, Manasik al-Hajj. Al he always observed the Dawood fast, which involves fasting on alternate days. In spite 
of the fact that he possessed good health and extraordinary strength. He had four wives and some, uh, some female slaves and spent a night with each wife. When he had finished writing his uh, Sunnah Kubra, one of the Amins asked him, Are all the hadith in your book Sahih? He said, No, some are Sahih and some Hassan. The Amir requested him uh, to compile for him those hadith in the book that, which were Sahih to the highest degree. So he compiled the Sunan Mujtaba. His death came in a very tragic and <coughs> cruel manner. The rulers in his, in his time were the Banu Umayyah, who were opposed to Sayyidina Ali, Rahimahullah, Imam Nasa'i. Uh, wrote a book in which he described the characteristics, good qualities, and auspicious condition of Sayyidina Ali rahimahullah. He resolved to read to the public from the book on a Friday in the mosque in Damascus. His intention was to correct the wrong impression about Sayyidina Ali rahimahullah in the mind of the common people, which they had been fed by the kingdom of Ben Umayyah. So on Friday, he began to read from the book before the people. He had just read a few passages when someone from the gather gathering got up and asked him, is it true that you have described Ali in this book but do tell us whether you have described it in the good qualities of Sayyidina Muawiyah or not. Imam Nasa'i rahimahullah said, I do not deny the greatness and virtue of Sayyidina Muawiyah and I agree that he has received salvation, but his virtues and excellences to not have as much importance as Sayyidina Ali radiallahu to warrant my writing of them. Some people have quoted Imam Nasa'i to have answered in this manner, I do not subscribe to the virtues attributed to Sayyidina Muawiyah He had not finished speaking that the gathering poured over him in fury. They beat him severely to such an extent that he could not even get up. His servants picked him up and took him to his home. And when he reached his home, he said, Take me to Mecca just now so that I may die in the sacred land or on my journey of it. He was taken to Mecca and he died there a martyr's death on Monday, 13th Safar on the three, 303 after Hijrah. He was buried between Salaf and Murrah. So think about that. Uh, one thing that is not being as emphasized is almost all of these figures were rejected in their time. Yeah. You know, we saw a little bit of that of Imam al-Bukhari. And it didn't say it as much here, but Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal was, was tortured. And, and so, so this is one of the difficult points. This is, now we're talking about a generation that's only 200 years removed from the Prophet, peace be upon him. And that's how they're behaving. And, and it's sad, but it is also a statement about human nature. You know. Banu Umayyah was the land where people really elevated Muawiyah, I mean, in Damascus and such. And so he's pushing back and he knew what he was getting into. You know, as far as we are concerned, you know, Ali, may Allah be pleased with him, is, is of an unmatched status comparable only to to the other three, right? Abu Bakr, Omar, Uthman. May Allah be pleased with all of them. But we even say about Ali, the Sunni tradition is may Allah ennoble his face. So usually we say radiallahu anh, and that is not wrong. But we often say karamallahu uh, wajhi. Yeah. And so, so the point is may Allah ennoble his his face. I Meaning he was never technically a an idol worshiper, and. And yeah, and this is the, the type of part of the citizenship we have uh, in different parts of our history. Right. Yeah. So weren't because uh, like we we said like Imam Nasari, rahimahullah, and uh, Imam Abu Hanifa, Imam um, Malik, not Imam Malik, sorry, Imam Ahmed bin Hamad, and Imam Bukhari, like all of them were like either tortured or imprisoned or killed for mm -hmm. like, their beliefs at the time. So it kind of goes back to what we were talking about before of like the hardships of scholarship. Yes. Yeah. yeah, that's a good, uh, good point.
that when you see wrong, you may have to stand up and you may be paying the, the, the ultimate price. So one question that I have, going back to the description of Imam Abu Dawood and like his, uh, the four hadith that he talks about, one of them is min yarni to leave matters that don't concern you. Yeah. But in another narration, it says, um, if you see wrong being done, then you first stop it with your hands. Mm-hmm. If you can't, then you stop it with your tongue. And if you can't, then you stop it with your heart. Or like, you, you feel, feel bad, bad in your head. Yeah. Heart. So like, you know, how do those two relate? Um, how, how do we reconcile them? Yes. Regarding staying away from things that are not your business, it means stay out of other people's business. Mm-hmm. But if a wrong is happening, uh, that means it's uh, a wrong that one person is doing to someone else. If it's a wrong that someone's doing to themselves, then your concern will be related to your level of relationship with them. So if you have a sibling who's doing wrong, you're probably going to butt in and do something about it. If you have a close friend, you're probably going to do something about it. If it's a stranger, <clears throat> you may be very, very loose at most, right? And so this is the example of the, the story of the old man who's not doing wudu correctly and the grandsons of the Prophet, peace on are seeing it. What do they do? They, they say like, oh... Tell us, like, which one of us is doing, like, we'll do better. Basically, yeah. like, making, like, a competition. Exactly, right? And, and so, so how you would address something with a stranger would be more often a matter of adab. Or, if it's even relevant. But don't stick your nose into uh, matters that are not related to you. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, next is Imam Ibn Majah, rahimahullah. <clears throat> his kunya was Abu Abdullah, and his name was Muhammad bin Yazid bin Majah. He was a resident of Qazwin, a city between Iraq and Iran. Qazwin, yeah. What? Qazwin. Qazwin. Small point, yeah. Uh, he was of the tribe Rabi'i, uh, which is said to be related to Rabi'a Badura. He is recognized as well-versed and experienced in the science of a hadith and a retainer of hadith in his strong memory. He learned from the students of Imam Malik and traveled to many lands. He's, his book, um, Jami'i ibn Majah, is an important part of the syllabus of hadith. It's also one of the Sahih Sitta. Some of the muhaddithin and imam scholars, as I said, consider it to be one of the sahih sitta. Um, there are many thadat al-hadith in the book. However, one munkar or mawdu' hadith has found itself in Ibn Majah. Therefore, some of the Islamic scholars refuse uh, to regard it as one of the sahih sitta as a result of that. Some people have narrated many hadith extolling the virtues of Qazwin, his native land, but authorities regard all of them as mawdu' which means like not really authentic. Yeah. He was born in 209 after Hijrah and died on Monday, 27th Ramadan, 20, 273 uh, at Hijrah, after Hijrah. Yeah. Okay, and appreciate from that the scrupulousness with which these scholars are writing, but then the scrupulousness uh, through which other scholars are then critiquing everything. Right. So. That even one hadith... Uh, Literally. Can, yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. SubhanAllah. Amazing. Um, Imam Darimi, rahimahullah, is next. His kunya was Abu Muhammad and his name was Abdullah ibn Abdurrahman Fadl Samarqandi al-Darani. Samarqandi refers obviously to the city Samarqand where he lived and Darmi refers to his tribe. He, yeah, where, where it says al-Darani is probably Darmi, but um, yeah, this book is full of typos. Yeah. Okay, Darmi. He was an eminent muhaddith and scholar. He was adorned with the virtues of piety, aestheticism, and contentment. Uh, his book, too, enjoys a distinct position in hadith literature. It's not one of the Sahih Sitta, but um, it's still a very amazing book of hadith and greatly respected and greatly regarded nonetheless. His teachers included Ibn Majah, um, 
Hiban ibn Hilal, Nadr ibn Shumayr, and Haya ibn Shurayh. He had a great many students too, and they include the muhaddithin of the caliber of Imam Muslim rahimahullah and Imam Tirmidhi rahimahullah. He was born in either 180, he was born in 181 after Hijrah and died in 255 after Hijrah. It is reported by Ishaq ibn Ahmad ibn Khalifa that he was sitting in an assembly of Imam Bukhari rahimahullah when they received news of the death of Abdullah ibn Abdurrahman al-Darimi. Imam Bukhari rahimahullah hung down his head in sorrow and explained, Inna lillahi wa inna he had taken it so hard that tears fell from his eyes onto his cheek. Mm -hmm. So it showed you like the level of respect that the Imams had for each other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That despite even if they critique one another, they still held the level of respect for each other. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, next is Imam Darqutni rahimahullah. His kunya was Abu Hassan and his name is Ali ibn Umar Darqutni. He was distinguished in the science of hadith and had extraordinary prowess. He was a great. Uh, he had a great knowledge of the cause and reason of the hadith and the conditions of the narrators. His well-known works are um, is the book of Darukhutni, which is re uh, recognized as a reliable book of hadith. Uh, it is his singularity that he related all the known lines of transmission of a hadith. In his quest for knowledge, he undertook travel to far-off lands such as Kufa, Busra, Syria, Wasit, Egypt, and other Muslim countries. Darukhutni is the name of the neighborhood in which he lived. Uh, hence, he is known by that name. Qatan is the Arabic word for cotton, and the neighborhood was a trading center for cotton, and that's how he became known as Darapukni. Um, his students included Abu Nu'aym, Abu Bakr Barqani, Jauhari, Qadi, ibn, uh, Qadi Abu Al-Tayyib Tabari, Hakim Abu Abdullah Nishapuri, and others. He was born in Baghdad in 305 or 306 after Hijra and died there on the 22nd of Dhul-Qa'da. Uh, in 350 after Hijra. Dar is especially known as one of the chief critics of Bukhari. Okay. That's one of his, his greatnesses. And, okay, good. Okay. Uh, next is Imam Ahmed ibn Hussein Bayhaqi. Uh, so, his kunya was Abu Bakr and his name was Sharif Ahmed ibn Hussein Bayhaqi. He held a respectable and esteemed rank in the eyes of the Islamic scholars and muhaddithin, and his excellence was confirmed. His works, um, numbered in thousands, and some reports attribute 7,000 articles on different aspects of religion, subhanAllah. This reflects on his wide knowledge and ability. Among his works, the very well-known are Kitab Mabsud, Kitab Sunan, Kitab Dada'il and Nubuwa, uh, Kitab Ma'rifa, Ulum Hadith, Kitab Ba'ath wa Nushur, Kitab Adab, Kitab Fadail, Sahaba, Kitab Fadail Awqat, Kitab Sha'ab al-Iman, Kitab Akhlaqiyat, and so on. He was born in Sha'ban in 384 after Hijrah and died in Nishapur uh, in 456 after Hijrah. There's a couple of Bayhaqi, so this is this is one of them, uh, but that's another good name to, to remember. Okay, so in like the Nawi collections when they say like Rawal Bayhaqi? Probably him. Okay. Um, Next is Imam Razin ibn Muawiyah, rahimahullah. His kunya was Abu Hussein, and his name was Razin ibn Muawiyah al-Abdari. Abu Dhar was a famous tribe of the Quraysh, and Razin belonged to it, hence he is known as Abdari. Uh, he was a front-ranked muhaddith and illustrious scholar of religion. He died in the year 530 AH. Yeah, that's right. uh, next is Imam Nawi, rahimahullah. His kunya was Abu Zakariya, and his name is Yahya bin Ashraf Hazami. His title was uh, Muhyuddin. Hazam was one of his ancestors and his family came to be known after him, Hazami. 
Nawa is a settlement near Damascus in Syria. He was a resident there and so got the name Nawi. He was born at Nawa on one of the first 10 days of Muharram, 621 after Hijrah. He died on Wednesday, 14th Rajab, uh, 677 after Hijrah in the night. Mm -hmm. I have a quick question. Um, yeah. Just reminding me, on, like as we're studying these hadith and uh, focusing on their, their authenticity, were there ever any scholars who purposefully, like, basically created a compilation of the worst, like, in terms of authenticity hadith, like, hadith yeah. that are purposefully, like... We do, we do have compilations of hadith that have been labeled as fraudulent, and those are still in publication today. That's yeah. Yeah. Um, but is it ever the case that, like, people just, like, don't realize that it's, like, a fraudulent hadith or something, or, like, they'll go to it and, like, say <laughs> it? So there's a, a couple things to, like, so the Prophet, peace upon him, spoke of a time and I forgot what the exact narration was, so I'm going to mail it for you, that um, where you will hear hadith that you've never heard before. And so it could be that they're going to come from these fraudulent collections, or it could be coming from non-hadith uh, non collections, but from other sources that will also have narrations in them. So, so we might use the term hadith, or we might use the term khabar. So like when we're going through Bukhari, or when we're going through Ghazali, um, he doesn't speak of them as hadith. He'll call them khabar or akhbar. And part of it is that he's also freeing himself of a certain standard that people want. You know, if he says hadith, uh, which is still synonymous with, with khabar, then people are expecting a certain level of authenticity. That's why some people are criticizing him, saying you're using narrations that are not authentic, but he's not using them for fiqh. He's using them to just make a general point, like about as we've seen the importance of knowledge. But suppose you go into a book that is not a hadith book, and you find this narration, and it appeals to you for whatever reason, then you might start spreading it. And so we see that right now uh, among the crowd of people who are speaking of uh, having a, a woman lead co-ed Jumar. And so there's a narration connected to Tabari over this book, that's not a Hadith book. There's another narration over here, which is uh, more of a compilation of histories, biographies, and such. And so that's what people are pulling from. Whereas you're not finding them in these big books. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, next is uh, Imam Ibn al-Jawzi, rahimahullah. His kunya was Abu al-Farah. His name was Abu Abdurrahman ibn al-Baghdadi Hanbali Siddiqi. But he is famous by the name of Ibn al-Jawzi, which is derived from Furdah al-Jawzi, um, which uh, is derived from Furdah al-Jawz, which is the name of a place. He was a great theologian, uh, able jurist, and superior muhaddith. The Islamic scholars unanimously recognize him as an excellent and uh, knowledgeable scholar. His works cover a wide range of subjects, such as jurisprudence, travel, and some more. Uh, the number of his books is very great, and he was accepted as an authority in these subjects. He had written a book on Maldur al-Hadith, in which he had collected the Hadith that are Maldur. Uh, another of there it is his, right there. That's interesting, yeah. yeah. Um, he had a written... Uh, he had written a... Another of his books was Tilbis uh, Iblis, in which he had discussed bid'ah, which is innovation, and acts that are contrary to the sunnah, and then rejected them. This book has an interesting account of devil's people, and an outright rejection of those who deny the Sufis, innovators, and the misda. Uh Imam Ibn al-Jawzi, rahimahullah, was extremely intelligent, and a number of accounts of his wisdom and intelligence are narrated in books of travel and history. One such account is related here. A Sunni and Shia had an argument on who was more excellent, Sayyidina Abu Bakr or Sayyidina Ali. 
The argument soon turned violent, and the two finally agreed to refer to Ibn Jozi and to accept his decision. Thus, they approached Ibn Jozi, rahimahullah, and he was delivering words of wisdom and advice from the public. One of the two parties interrupted him and asked, Who among the companions is more excellent? Uh, Imam al-Jawzi realized the delicacy of the situation. The government was in the hands of the Shias and Ibn al-Jawzi was careful enough to give them an answer that should not displease the Sunni, uh, and that's the truth, nor the Shia, lest there should be trouble and unrest. He gave a very intelligent answer, which was, the most alleged, uh, excellent of the companions of the Prophet وسلم, is that his daughter is in his house. Imam Ibn al-Jawzi said only this much and went away from there so that he may not have to explain these words. After these men, both the parties were happy with the answer, each believing that his contention was supported. The Sunni believed that the answer implied that the superior companion is he whose daughter is in the house married to the Prophet because Sayyidina Abu Bakr daughter Aisha was married to the Prophet so Sayyidina Abu Bakr was more excellent. However, the Shia read the answers to suggest that he's more excellent uh, in whose house the daughter of the Prophet is and because Sayyiduna Fatima was married to Sayyiduna Ali he believed that Sayyiduna Ali was superior. It was It's in that way that Imam al-Jawzi um, used his ability and his wisdom to be able to control the people so as to not cause unrest. Um, basically kind of being politically correct. Yeah, that's basically what he's doing. And and another example, another point you can take from this is that sometimes you're not going to resolve um, a disagreement between two people. Right. So you just got to figure out how to word things and just make everyone go about their way happy. So. Right. Okay. Um, next is Imam Abu Hanifa. Uh, his name was Nu'man and his kunya was Abu Hanifa, while his t- title was Imam Azam. His father was Thabit and his grandfather was Zuta. Zuta was a resident of Iran and um, by religion was a Zoroastrian, uh, which are the fire worshippers. Um, and when the light of, Zuta, uh, of Islam spread to lands beyond Arabia and also came over Persia, uh, Zuta decided to embrace Islam. Some people of his family harassed him after he had become a Muslim um, and stopped him from practicing the rites of Islam. So Zuta set his mind on Hijrah, which is migration for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's cause. And he went away from his native land with his wife and some property and traveled towards Mecca. This was during the era of Sayyiduna Ali as Khalifa. And Kufa was the capital city of Islam. And the grandeur of, mid- of majesty was apparent there. Zuta reached Kufa and gave up the idea of proceeding to Mecca and settled at Kufa. He earned his living through t- uh, trading in textiles. Uh, in early 48 after Hijra, uh, a son was born to him who he named Thabit. In the prime of Thabit's youth, Zuta died and in 80 Hijra, a son was born to Thabit who named him Nu'man. Later on, Nu'man took up the kunya Abu Hanifa. He became famous with the title of Imam Azam. When Imam Abu Hanifa was born, about 70 years had passed since the Prophet Sallallahu death. Many of the companions, two had departed from uh, this life, but three of them remained, which were Sayyiduna Anas ibn Malik, who was the attendant of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Sayyidina Sahl ibn Sa'id al-Ansari, who we also get hadith from. Sayyidina Abu Tufayl Amir uh, ibn Bathira. Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah, met two of them, Sayyidina Anas and Sayyidina Abu Tufayl Amr. 
He had the benefits of having their company and thus had the honor of becoming a tabi'i, which is only his distinction, uh, which is his distinction specifically among the four uh, imams of the madhahib, as we talked about earlier. He received his early education at home, um, and when he gained some wisdom, his father got him to, jo uh, to join the family business. When he was 16 years old, his father Thabit died, and the responsibility of caring for the family business fell on his shoulders. He was very intelligent and hardworking, and soon the business grew and expanded. Apart from the shop that he had inherited, he set up a factory of textiles, and he, and he lived very comfortably. As he crossed 20 summers of his life, he became interested in acquiring knowledge. Once while on one of his business tours, he met the famous scholar and Qadi of Kufa, Anama Sha'abi Rahimahullah. The Anama Rahimahullah asked him, Dear son, who do you learn from? Imam Abu Hanifa replied regretfully that he had not learned from anyone. The Anama said to him in a very loving tone, I see in you pearls of ability. You should sit with the Islamic scholars. This advice had a great appeal on the boy's heart. He narrated what had transpired to his mother and when he came home and sought her permission to join a madrasa. She already favored that and her son's inclination pleased her very much so she allowed him to go through. Uh, so he looked for a teacher of hadith and fiqh and that came to him um, in the circle of the most learned scholar and teacher of Kufa, Hamad Rahimahullah. Uh, he discerned in the student the natural light and uh, and and ability and he paid personal attention to him so that Abu Hanifa learned fiqh thoroughly in the, in the span of two years. In that short time he gained not only a complete knowledge of fiqh but also displayed his exceptional intelligence and demonstrated his ability and itihad which is judgment and interpretation of Islamic law and he also began to study hadith because he knew that knowledge of hadith is complementary to the knowledge of fiqh because fiqh is derived from the narrations of the Prophet as well as Quran. Um, so he went to the Muhaddithin of Kufa and did not leave any scholar except that he learned from him. Before all of them, he sat down to study. Among those who taught him in hadith were Imam Sha'ri rahimahullah, Salama ibn Quhayl rahimahullah, um, Abu Ishaq Sabi'i rahimahullah, um, and Ibrahim ibn Muhammad, Adi ibn Thabd, uh, Musa ibn Abu Aisha, and so on. Yeah, there's a bit of a pro Abu Hanifa bias in this book. <laughs> and so on. He then went to Butra where he attended the classes of the Imams of Hadith, the Tabirin Qatada Rahimahullah, and the Amir al Mu'minin Hadith, Shu'ba Rahimahullah. I just have a quick question though. Is this Shu'ba like the same person like Shu'ba and Asim, like the one of the Qur'at is based off of? I'm thinking probably not, but Allah knows best. Okay. Um, his other teachers in Busra were Abdul Karim ibn Umayyah rahimahullah and Asim ibn Sulaiman rahimahullah. He then prepared for the journey to the Haramain and his age then was about 24 years. He, received, uh, he reached Mecca and attended the lessons of Atta ibn Abu Rabah whose circles of students was very wide and very popular. One of the reasons for his popularity and honor was his association with 200 companions عنهم, whose company and blessings had raised him to the level of Ittihad. Imam Abu Hanifa attended the classes of other Islamic scholars too in Mecca Ikrimah, rahimahullah, being one of them. Uh, and this isn't the same as the Sahaba Ikrimah, who had passed by them. Yeah. There he met the Islamic scholars and the religious elders, Imam, uh, among them Imam Baqir, rahimahullah, and his son Imam Ja'far Sadiq, rahimahullah, whose classes he attended. He was honored by the narration of hadith from Salim uh, ibn Abdullah and Sulaiman, rahimahullah. Um, as we said, and as we uh, give examples of, uh, the number of teachers of Imam 
Abu Hanifa were large, um, and according to some scholars, reached the 4,000 figure of how many teachers he had. It's just teachers, not students. Right. So. SubhanAllah. Some people suggest that Imam Abu Hanifa did not compose any book on the science of hadith and that he relied on his own opinion, having no concern with hadith. However, this is a baseless, uh, baseless accusation and criticism, um, and it's a result of misunderstanding. We know that the rank in, uh, enjoyed by Imam Abu Hanifa in hadith from the huge number of the Musnad he has written, which no one else has matched in numbers. If anyone can rank with him, then it's Imam Malik rahimahullah. These Musnads are a part of his Kitab al-Athar, um, which is his famous and highly authentic book. Besides, everyone is agreed that a Mujtahid uh, is only he who has perfect familiarity and knowledge of five things. The Quran, Hadith, Athar, Tariq, which is history, language, and Qiyas, which is verdicts. It is a fact that Imam Abu Hanifa was a perfect Mujaddid, and the Ummah is agreed to this fact. Under these circumstances, it is foolish to accuse him of not knowing hadith. Um, Hafiz Zahabi rahimahullah, has quoted the classmate of Imam Abu Hanifa, Musa'ar ibn Kidam, as saying, Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah, and I studied together. He surpassed me and was also more ascetic. The Imam of investigation, like hadith investigation, Yahya ibn Qatan rahimahullah, said, by Allah, Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah is the greatest scholar of this ummah and the knowledge that has come from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his messenger. Maki ibn Ibrahim called Abu Hanifa the most learned of the time. Um, and there are other uh, praiseworthy uh, comments about Imam Abu Hanifa that the book mentions. In 142, Imam Abu Hanifa visited Baghdad and third Abbas, Sid Khal, uh, Caliph. Uh, Mansur offered him the post of Qadi. Initially, he rejected the offer, but on the insistence of Mansur, he accepted the post. Then on the very first day, he got up from the court and went, went to Mansur, telling him, I can't do this. Uh, Mansur did not appreciate this atti attitude and immediately put the imam behind bars. He remained in prison for four years, during which the, uh, time Mansur got him poisoned in Rajab 150 AH. When he felt the, uh, the poison in him, he fell down in prostration and died in that position. He died on the 15th of Rajab. Uh, 150 AH. Alrighty. Um, Lot to unpack there. Yeah, there was something I was going to list about Imam Abu Hanifa, but uh, I guess it's small enough detail that it's not important that I'm not remembering. Okay, inshallah khair. Uh, okay, then we'll stop here, inshallah. Okay, inshallah. And next time we'll do some terminology. Yes. Uh, look up a poem. It's called Baikuniya. Baikuniya? Yeah. Alright, let me let me write that down. Baikuniya. How do you spell it? Uh, B A Y Q U N I Y Y A. I got it. Perfect. See if you can find it like in PDF. Yeah, I got and, an English translation of it. Oh perfect. It's Arabic and English together? Yes. Yeah, and then the more you can memorize of that, the more the next section will be easier. Alright, I'm gonna a, try to memorize this by next week. Yeah, you can. Inshallah, if you can. Okay. It's a, a poem of uh, hadith terminology. Got it. Perfect. And and so one thing to think about. Um, um, so a core of our tradition is memorization, and and so the criticism is that there's not as much critical thinking, um, and the pushback is that a lot of the stuff that's in prose for what you want and need from it, it's little siphoning here and there. And so uh, a lot of times what uh, today might be a 300 page book, back then it would be like a one page poem. 
just to make the simple bare minimum points of, of, of things. Right. Yeah. Okay, very good. So you do want to meet next week and chill. It's finals. Remember that? Yes, yeah, I do. Okay, chill. Then we're still on the schedule. Okay, chill. All right. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika. Nashadu Allah ilaha illa anta. Nasafiru anatubu ilaik. Wa akhiru da'wana. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alamin. Good.